Well, if any of you did your assignment this week and, and read the book of Esther, did you happen to notice that there is something missing in the book of Esther? In fact, its absence is what has led many over the centuries to question whether the book should even be included in the canon of Scripture. What's missing? The name of God. Nowhere in the Hebrew text does God ever appear in that book by name. The late Ray Stedman wrote, For many this little book is a puzzle, for it seems to be out of place in the Bible. There's no mention, of it in the, in, there's no mention in it of the name of God. There's no reference to worship or to faith. There's no prediction of the Messiah. There's no mention of heaven or hell. In short, there's nothing religious about it, at least on the surface. It is a gripping tale, but might rather expect to find it in the pages of the Reader's Digest than the Bible. The name of God may not appear, but the handprint of God is all over the pages of this book. Matthew Henry, the 17th century biblical scholar, wrote, But though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is directing many minute events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. Last week I quoted Karen Jobes as suggesting, and rightfully so I think, that the overarching theological theme of the book of Esther is throughout history God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. That's a very key word for us this morning, providence. We get our English word from the Latin, providentia. Um, pro meaning before or ahead of time, videntia meaning to see. And so literally seeing ahead of time. God sees ahead of time. Now how does God see ahead of time? Well, remember God is outside of time. God created time. And so when we put together the fact that he is outside of time and that he created time and that he's omniscient, meaning that he is all-knowing, he sees the end as well as the beginning. And he sees beginning to end before the end has not yet been lived out. So he sees it all. And this God who is outside of time acts within time of his own will to accomplish his own divine purposes. The story of Rester really is the story of providence, God's providence. Now, here, here's a very important, significant aspect of providence that we need to see in our lives as well as Esther's. Job's writes, when we speak of God's providence, we mean that God in some invisible and inscrutable way governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and the ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. This is what is so striking about the book of Esther. J. Sidlow Baxter, if you, want, if you want a great book to you should have in your library, it's by J. Sidlow Baxter. It's called Explore the Book. And in there he... he outlines and, and comments on all the books in the Bible. When he comes to the book of Esther, he says this. We are meant to see providential overruling as distinct from supernatural intervening. Above all, we are meant to see in the natural outworking of events 
how without violating human free will and without interrupting the ordinary ongoing of human affairs, a hidden power unsuspectedly but infallibly controls all things. God seems absent. But the point is that there is no place in the world where he is not at work. At work in human decisions and human actions to accomplish his divine will. He works for his own people. For example, in Esther and Mordecai in this book. Though some of their actions and motives are morally ambiguous and even questionable as we see. And yet God uses them in his providence to accomplish his end. There's a New Testament corollary to that for we who are his children. And it comes from a very familiar verse, Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love him and that are the called according to his purpose. To understand Esther, it helps to also see it in the context of other scriptural teaching. And so, for example, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, we read, All the inhabitants of the earth are as counted as nothing, and he, that is God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Do you remember the Old Testament character Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers who are jealous over dad's favoritism of him, and and while there he serves as as basically a house slave, Uh, he's falsely accused of wanting to uh, seduce his master's wife, he's thrown into prison, and yet God prospers him there, and he becomes in charge of all the prison, and then finally he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and then is raised to the level of the second in the kingdom as prime minister, if you will, of all Egypt. But he's speaking to his brothers after his father has died, after they've been brought down to Egypt. And they're fearful, as I would be, that he's now going to punish them because of what they had done to him. And yet, look at his response. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And the striking thing in the story of Joseph is, again, there's no miracle in that story. Kent Hughes writes, God does not suspend his natural laws to make things happen. This is the invisible hand of God in his perfect plan through human events. So that at the end of his life, Joseph could tell his brothers that all that had transpired was God's plan for their ultimate good. And it was. One of the questions that must have been in the mind of the Jews after the exile, remember they've gone, been carried off into Babylon, and at the end of 70 years, Cyrus, the king, the new Persian king, allows the Jews to return. A portion of them do, but most of them stay in Babylon. And um, you know, one of the questions that has to be running through their minds is, does God's covenant still apply to us? Or maybe I put it in another way. Is there yet a future for us? Well, the story of Esther and God's deliverance through human decisions and actions answers in the affirmative. 
So we're going to look today at the providence of God through the decrees and the actions of others that are found in this book to see that God works through human history, through individuals, good and bad, to bring about his perfect will. It begins with a rash decision that King Ahasuerus makes. Remember, he's throwing this 180-day feast for the leaders all over his empire to come in. He's preparing them as they're going to go to war against Greece. And um, he summons the queen to come before him, and uh, she refuses. And so he calls his counselors who give advice, advice that is surely based on very biased motives here. Uh, They're to dump the queen, lest men all throughout the empire face revolt from their wives. Wow. Uh, But this rash decision and, and the heartless action sets the stage for Esther's entrance into the palace. And Esther finds favor with the king. And and here again, we see this coming together of human actions and divine providence. So let's go to the text. If you've got your Bible or your electronic device, want to turn to Esther chapter 2. If you grab a Bible in front of you, page 520. Esther chapter 2. This is where we will pick up the story in the text this morning. And I'm going to start reading in chapter 2 at verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. Remember, she's Jewish. For Mordecai, her uncle who had adopted her as his own daughter because of her parents being deceased, Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now, look at verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. The author of the book doesn't try to provide any evaluation or any justification of her morals or those of Mordecai. It just happens to be the part of the story. Would Esther likely have succeeded had she revealed her ethnicity? Who knows? It's easy reading the story 24 centuries later because we know the outcome. We can read to the end of the book. We know what happens. Uh, We know that she couldn't have saved her people if she'd not been in a position that she was in in the palace to plead on their behalf. But listen, Esther didn't know that. She had no clue. Uh, It's too easy to sit in judgment on her choice, right or wrong. 
You know, life, you find this true? Life isn't always so tidy. But here she is. And we see in Scripture that God uses even evil. And he even uses evil people to accomplish his purpose. Pharaoh in Egypt is one that comes to my mind. The Scripture declares that God turns the heart of a king just like you turn a channel of water. We'll see, looking more next week, how God will even use Haman, a truly evil man planning evil things, but he'll use that to accomplish his will. And what a turn of events that'll end up being for Haman. Well, you remember the stories we looked at it last week, but as well as this is happening, Esther's come into the palace, Mordecai uncovers an assassination plot against the king. And he informs Esther, who tells the king in Mordecai's name. And, and the events of this are all written down then in the book of the Chronicles of the King. But what we notice is nothing's done for Mordecai. There's no reward. There's no promotion. There, there's, there's no acknowledgement, in fact. And then chapter 3 begins this way. Verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, how ironic is this little section? You've got this contrast between the unrewarded merit of Mordecai and the unmerited reward of Haman. What a, what a contrast that we have here. But this is just going to set the stage for the way that God honors his covenant with his people. Neither Mordecai, let me remind you, neither Mordecai nor Esther can see what is going to happen. They are just in position to play a pivotal role in the safekeeping of God's people. But listen, let's think about ourselves. Aren't we often in situations that are beyond our control? We cannot nor do we know what impact that they're going to have in our lives, in our future. But we have to keep coming back to what the scripture teaches that God knows. And that has to lead us to have confidence that he will work out his will in our lives and others by his divine providence. Often, though, it's only looking back that we gain and appreciate that perspective. Have you noticed that in your life? It's often, and so maybe for those of us that are older, it is an advantage because we get to look back further and we get to see these events and these actions that have all contributed to where we are. Certainly, that was the experience of Joseph again. Humanly, there was the injustice of it all, being sold into slavery by his brothers. The injustice of Potiphar, to whom he was enslaved. And yet, God used even those injustices to bring about what was good. So that Joseph could say, you intended to do evil, but God intended to do good. This is surely the situation of the cross for Jesus as well. Satan conspired through sinful people to execute Jesus on a cross. 
And yet we see in Scripture that was God's intent since before the creation. We read an amazing thing in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John had been arrested for preaching the risen Christ. And then they appeared before the Jewish council. They were threatened and then released. And then they went and hooked up with the church, with the other believers, and they led them in prayer. And in their prayer, notice what they said. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now get this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You know, how could you at the time have looked at the cross and concluded this was God's plan? But he was working his divine providence through people in their actions, in their decisions to accomplish what he wanted to happen. Now Haman puts his dastardly plan into place, convincing the king that the Jewish people are not worth living. Let's go to the text. Let's go to Esther chapter 3. And I want to pick up in the text at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people. Doesn't that have a ring of snide arrogance? There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit, or profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. I mean, from a human perspective, this has the possibility of literally wiping out an entire race of people. But, of course, that's not the whole story, is it? Mordecai hears of this plan, and it's already been put into motion. Letters have already been sent all over the kingdom, and informing them on such and such a day in the month of Adar, 12 months later, they were going to rise up and they were going to kill every Jew. They were going to plunder everything that they owned. And Mordecai hears about this plan and he forms Esther. And he says to Esther, you're in a position to do something about this. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Job writes, in this scene, the interaction of human responsibility with divine sovereignty is eloquently pictured. Esther comes to this defining moment through her past decisions, whether they're right or wrong. The decisions she now faces will irrevocably define her future and determine the destiny of her people as well. And then we come to this hinge in the story. We just looked at it briefly last week. Such an unlikely circumstance a seemingly mundane situation, the king's insomnia. He can't sleep. 
And so he asked that the book of the Chronicles of the Kings be brought in and read to him. I don't know. Maybe it's like, if you can't go to sleep, may I suggest, just go turn to Leviticus, read it. You know, that'll do the job. So maybe the king is hoping the same thing. They bring the Chronicles in. They start to read. And lo and behold, they run across this passage that talks about the assassination attempt and plan against the king and how Mordecai has done something. Well, the whole world at this point seems open to Haman, doesn't it? Second only to the king in the kingdom. Everybody has to bow down to him when he goes by. Uh, but he's going to lose everything just because the king couldn't sleep. And this arbitrary reading of the book of the Chronicles. And this sets in motion the event that's going to lead to their doom and it's going to undo the doom against the Jewish people at that point. But these human actions and decisions will result in God ruling in history to keep his covenant promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises that he made to his people Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, God certainly has also worked within history in supernatural ways. You know, we see it in biblical history. We see it in contemporary history. But these are distinct from the ways that God usually works within the nature of his creation. The point of the book of Esther seems to be how God fulfills his promises through providence. And without any observable miracle, decisions made by individuals led to an outcome that conformed to the promises that God had made to his covenant people. Because God will forever be faithful and his providence then uses human actions to fulfill his end. I would guess that most of you here could share how God's providence has been evident in your life. When you look back on the days of your life, you see how God has moved you and directed you different ways. People, maybe even others besides you, made decisions that affected who you are and what you're doing today. But God takes those decisions and actions, whether good or bad, and uses them for his purposes. Um, you don't get to come up here today since I'm up here. But maybe I'll just, will you let me share a little of my story? Let me illustrate uh, as I look back and see how God's providence has shaped things to where I am today. Every one of them has contributed to why I stand here this morning my oldest brother, Stephen, had gone down to Iowa State University and gotten involved in the student ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he would bring students that were involved in the ministry and staff members with Crusade up to our farm on weekends. And so I, I met a lot of them, you know, when I was still in high school. So really, my first day on campus, I became involved in this student ministry. Uh, all four years was involved. In fact, that really was poor, probably more my major. And um, when, I, when I hit a, a GPA, oh boy, confession, they say, is good for the soul, bad for the reputation. But my freshman year in college, when I hit a 175 GPA, because I was involved with Crusade most of the time, uh, yeah, you have that mom and dad talk, you know. Some of you have either had it or you've given it. So I shaped up there, but I still was involved. And I was a student leader through all of my time there. 
So I graduated and I'm, I'm praying and I was going to go on staff with Campus Crusade. So I'm praying that I would go to a large university that has a large Campus Crusade ministry so I could be involved in the, in the grandness of it all. Um, Instead, those that are in the personnel ministry uh, and, and part of Crusade made the decision that I would go with a small team to open a new ministry up in St. Cloud, Minnesota at what was then the St. Cloud State College, been a teacher's college, and now later a university, uh, with a small team of four people, including me, on a campus of maybe 10,000 students. Not a decision I would have made but somebody else made it for me. But there I got involved in every aspect of ministry, teaching and evangelism and discipleship and mentoring. Most significantly, I met a crusade staff woman who was now back at her alma mater, the University of Minnesota, because we had a joint retreat together. And I met this person who I fell in love with and married, Nancy Robinson. We just celebrated our 45th anniversary. Uh, if I had gone somewhere else, uh, somewhere else, I wouldn't have been uh, meeting this person. Um, we got married that summer. It's the summer of 1974. And, and we requested, put our request in through personnel that we wanted to go open a new ministry at the University of Wisconsin, Oshkosh. Anybody ever heard of Oshkosh, Wisconsin? Yeah, some of you have. Look at that. Absolutely. Um, one day a year, this is just, a, 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 well, it's not even relevant. It's just a rabbit trail. Um, one day a year, it has the largest population of airplanes. It's experimental flights one day a year. I think it's one day a year. Uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So we wanted to go open the ministry there. Um, no, instead they decided you're going to get married and then we're going to send you to the East Coast. We're going to send you to Blacksburg, Virginia, and you're going to direct our work at Virginia Tech. So we load everything in, in the U-Haul after our summer staff training. We drive across the country. We end up down in, in Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, a personnel decision I didn't make. Uh, two years later, my area director now went to work for a ministry here in Washington. And so Nancy and I moved to Richmond. And then I supervised our staff in the mid-Atlantic area here. Um, probably wouldn't have happened without all those prior personnel decisions that somebody else made. Um, then in 1978, we were asked to leave uh, the campus ministry and our position in Richmond and move to the Washington area and work with our ministry of Christian embassy. One of my ministries was in the Pentagon with military officers. When the senior pastor at Emmanuel Bible Church left, several of the officers who attended that church suggested that maybe I would be the interim teacher uh, where they're looking for a new senior pastor. And so I met with the interim search committee with, with, the, uh, with the board of elders, and uh, they, uh, they asked me to do that. So I did that for 20 months. Uh, there, Nancy and I built a relationship with Alan and Carly Fisher. I had never met them before until I ended up down at Emmanuel. Um, after a few months there, where I was just preaching three Sunday morning services, um, I sensed God's leading that I should throw my hat in the ring as a candidate. Nothing was ever said because I was only coming to be an intern. So um, I did. I, I felt at that point 100% sure I was to become a candidate. And so I met with staff and I met with the elder board and I met with the search committee. Uh, and um, after a number of meetings, they decided I shouldn't be in the process. And uh, I was 100% sure that I should enter the process with no sense that that's where I should end up. And looking back on it, I'm 100% sure that I wasn't to be the senior pastor there. 
but God used what happened there in his providence to begin to move me into different position and thinking where I was with Campus Crusade at that point. Uh, in the meantime, I served another church as their interim uh, down at Capitol Hill Baptist Church before Mark Dever came for 10 months. Um, and um, in 1996, Nancy and I felt it was time for us to leave Campus Crusade staff. For 10 months, I served as the interim pastor at Faith Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kingstown. I was becoming a professional interim <laughs> and enjoying it all the time. I kept doing my other stuff. Um, and then I went to work Spencer Brand. He's spoken here before. Uh, Spencer Brand has started something called the Endowment for Community Leadership, and we raised money to help fund uh, inner city ministries uh, all around the country. And so I worked for him for a year. The endowment owned a townhouse office over in the heart of Fairfax, and renting the top floor was an organization called Enterprise Development International, a Christian microfinance organization working with local organizations around the world to help poor entrepreneurs start or expand small businesses so they could support themselves and their family. So I went to work with them. Uh, they, I, they were upstairs, I was down, and uh, that position opened up and I began to work with them. Now to continue the story, are you with me? I gotta, I gotta backtrack just a little bit here. When I was a director of the Christian Embassy here in Washington, um, a fundraiser for Campus Crusade Ministries on college campuses who lived in the area began to help us out with some of our fundraising activities. His name was Jim Dempsey. Some of you recognize his name. Uh, we fast forward to the summer of 2001. I was contacted by the chairman uh, of the elder board of a church that was meeting in a commercial building in the Fair Oaks area. The elders asked if I would become their interim teacher because they were now between their senior pastor's uh, time. Um, I met with the chairman a couple times, and I was really on the verge of, of accepting the invitation of again being an interim teacher at a church that was going in between pastors while I continued to work at Enterprise Development. And then I got a phone call from Jim Dempsey and said, hey, let's go to lunch. So we went to lunch. And while we're eating, he told me that the pastor of his church, Knollwood Community Church, had left a few months earlier and uh, asked if I would consider coming and being the interim teacher here at Knollwood where they look for a new senior pastor. Uh, so here I am. I have two offers to go teach and be somewhere. After much prayer, uh, Nancy and I decided that we ought to come to Knollwood, and I accepted the invitation to come and to preach here at Knollwood. You want to talk about irony. Only later would I find out that that other church was actually an offshoot of Knollwood Community Church uh, that split off with the arrival of my predecessor. And so here I was. Which, which direction do I go? Uh, who knew? I began to preach at Knollwood on the Sunday before 9-11-2001. During that time, the search committee is now beginning to work. And there's a couple of our search committee members here. Um, uh, they were working through, they, I think they had 400 resumes or something, and they were looking through resumes, and they are listening to tapes, winnowing it down. They eventually winnowed it down to one person, and they, they, they had him come in and candidate and offered the position. But... Um, you know, he kept praying and waiting for God to give him, you know, freedom to, to leave his church where he was at and a green light to come to Knollwood. Uh, this continued on into the early spring of 2002. Uh, Nancy and I began to wonder as time went on, well, man, maybe God has something in mind for us and for Knollwood. 
But we decided not to say anything to anyone because we didn't want to muddy the waters. We were going to wait and see what happened with this other gentleman. Later in the fall, the, the committee reopened the search and they began to gather more resumes. And finally, late in the fall, this fellow that they'd asked to be their new senior pastor had said no. And so I called Jim Dempsey. I didn't, Mike Friedy was the chair of the committee, and I didn't want to put him on the spot. And so I called Mike, and, uh, and I just said, hey, would you call, would, uh, call Jim? And I said to Jim, would you call Mike and um, just tell him that we feel led that maybe we ought to come into the process. We have no, no assurance that this is where I ought to end up. We just have that sense that this is the path that God wants us to walk. So he called Mike and, and asked him if that would be appropriate. Mike called me and said, yes, it would. And so we had several meetings with the search committee. Um, all the while, I'm preaching Sunday mornings uh, over in the other building there as the interim. Uh, the committee voted in December of 2002 to recommend me and then presented me as a candidate the first Sunday in 2003 in January. Held, held 14 meetings over the next two weeks. And then the church voted and confirmed uh, God's providence that I was to be the senior pastor at Knollwood. By the way, the vote was 98 to 2. So I don't know if those two are still hoping I leave soon. But let me tell you, you have Jim Dempsey and Mike Fried and Thomas DePietro and, uh, and you've got Glenda Letcher. You've got some people around here to blame. Okay? Don't blame me. Blame them. But the rest is history. God's providence with decisions that were made even by others going back 50 years that leads to where I am today. It's amazing. Now, you can probably do the same with, with your life. It, it may be more dramatic than that, maybe less dramatic, it doesn't matter. But human decision actions that are made and God takes them and that's what explains where we are today. I have no other explanation why this Iowa farm boy ends up here in the Washington, D.C. area but I have to start tracing my steps from Iowa to Minnesota to Virginia Tech to Richmond to Washington. That's the only way that makes sense. It's amazing, isn't it? Let me remind you of Karen Job's comment. When we speak of God's providence, we mean that God in some invisible and inscrutable way governs all creatures' actions and circumstances through the normal and the ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. Yeah, I know we could say it was all miraculous, but I mean, if we're honest, it's simply decisions that people made. Um, God didn't intervene. He simply overruled things that I had in mind, yet he did. So I'm going to give you an assignment this week. Aren't you thrilled that you came this morning? Here's your assignment. I want you to think back over your life. Just, just take a little time sometime. Think back over your life, over your decisions and actions that you made or that others made. And can you see the providence of God at work? Can you see how he's used even things that were bad on a human level, even things that didn't seem to make sense, even things that, that you just can't figure out, but he's used them to shape in your life. Is it not true that there are events and decisions uh, that we've made that God has used in our life, things that seemed at the time insignificant, uh, unexpected, even undesired, and yet God is committed to his perfect will for you and for me. And our lives intersect with so many other people because of that. I mean, only the infinite mind of God can figure out how he works according to his perfect will 
uh, when we touch so many different people with the things that we do and the things that happen. Are you willing to trust that God in his providence is at work in you for your good, ultimately, and for his glory? That's the real question for us from the book of Esther. What would you pray with me? God, thank you that you are a God who sees the beginning and the end. That there is nothing that we are going to face in our lives tomorrow, next week, next year, but that you don't already know it. And that you are somehow, in a mysterious way, at work to use events and decisions and actions, sometimes good and sometimes not so good, but that you're committed to using those things in the normal course of affairs to move us where you want us, to shape us into the people you want us to be, to use us in the way you want to use us. Lord, I pray you'd allow us to step away from our immediate lives and take a bigger look as we look back and as we look forward, that we would see that you're a gracious God who loves us, who has our best in mind, and that you are working where you place us and how you use us. And for the gifts that you give us and for the gifts that you withhold from us, all we can say is thank you for your grace. And so we thank you today for another week of life before us. May you be pleased to work in and through us. For Christ's sake and in his name I pray, amen.